Chicky, chicky, boom, boom. All right, hold on. Ebodkin. Yeah, so we're both a little under the weather today. Uh, yeah, no, I'm feeling good. I'm just uh, a bit in a bit of a, a trance here. I got a cold. I'm not sure how. Yeah, I think but, we're, what? we're blaming our uh, out-of-state visitor for that. <laughs> brought that, it was <laughs> California <laughs> germs. I'm, I don't know, sitting on planes and stuff. But, but it's strange because, uh, like, everybody in my family got sick, like, but they were done, like, a week ago or two weeks ago. So Yeah, it's going around. I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it. Like, oh, I'm sick. I'm so-and-so's home. And yeah. So it's going around, but I got my flu shot, so. No, you don't have the flu. I am uh, invincible. Or the, or the plague. You don't have the plague. The plague. And we're back. It's not a lot of pre-show banter today. No. All right, go ahead. We have it. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X. And I'm Mike. And boy, do we have a show for you. Today on RMA, Mike reluctantly takes down his Halloween decorations and gets the giant rotating (laughs) and singing inflatable turkey ready for his (laughs) annual tribute to Thanksgiving yard display. And we discuss the book, Unbroken Brain by Maya Zalovitz. And we ask ourselves, is addiction a learning disorder? <laughs> All this and more today on a very special edition of RMA. How are you, sir? I'm okay. You gave me a great idea. What? A giant rotating turkey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you, you were sharing this this time um, with the monsters on the private group what you did a little bit for Halloween. Yeah, I went so. out there and took a video and yeah. posted it. If you want to see it, you should join the private Facebook group. Yeah, yes. Mike is uh, revealing all of the uh, <laughs> wonderful yard art. <laughs> Listen, that takes me a long time to get that all set up, and I, and I think uh, people appreciate it. Yeah, just like um, Christmas Vacation, who's at National Lampoon. It's not quite that. <laughs> I mean, everybody thinks of that, you know. Well, Christmas, I got stuff coming. I got animatronics. I want to get some new ones. Chevy Chase. Uh, and uh, first, we'd like to welcome all the new people listening here in the USA and around the world. New Zealand, Australia, the United Kingdom. Kazakhstan. <laughs> Kazakhstan. Um, if you're out there, thank you. We'd love to hear from you. So send us an email um, and find us. Uh, where can they find us, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> you weren't ready for the queue. Uh, no, the, the best place would be at middleagesrecovery.com, um, where you can listen, submit your story, buy awesome merchandise, and get in touch with us if you so desire. We'll read your great review on the air. Apparently <laughs> not, not the bad ones, though. No, we're not, Please log yeah. on to your favorite podcast app. Uh, Apple Podcasts is best because you can give us the stars. Five of them are appreciated. Helps us get up in the uh, the rankings and get on the front page. And then once we get on the front page, the the world is our oyster. Katie, bar the door. We're coming for you. Mm. What's that? Just like a mishmash of sayings I've heard over the years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Join the private Facebook group. The discussion continues there 24-7, 365. We screen new members. (laughs) 
<laughs> especially lately. And the discussion is unsearchable, so we can all feel comfortable, safe, and secure, and happy. Um, and buy, buy a freaking t-shirt, would you? Come on. Have you checked to see if anyone's ordered t-shirts? <laughs> yeah. Nobody? No. <laughs> Come on, guys. We've we've now officially given away more than we've sold. Um, These are really cool shirts. They're comfortable. I'm wearing one right now. And it, if you want the one I'm wearing today, it's an extra $50. Yeah. That'll uh, be nice and sweaty. And- he'll wear it for a couple of days and then put it in a be- plastic bag and send it to your house. Yeah. You know, and along with a picture, a signed picture. Yes. So come on and buy a shirt already. You know, I start, I wonder. I have to wonder if it's recovery. People don't want to wear recovery on their sleeves, so to speak, or on their chest. Yeah, I mean, I see a small movement of, like, companies that sell recovery, like, mm-hmm. shirts, like, clever recovery saying. Yeah. But that's a relatively new thing. Yeah. I think you're probably right. Like, I'm, I wear our podcast shirt around. Right. And I actually, I'm hoping nobody asks me what it is, <laughs> you know. But uh, at the bus stop the other day, somebody was just like, Recovery in the like reading it news and I'm like oh no 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 middle ages that's <laughs> you know, my friend's podcast I always say yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was yeah true. It so is my I don't know podcast. how do you sell recovery merch that's not re- doesn't say recovery on yeah. it that's yeah. if somebody can crack that nut for us let us know uh, tell us your story log on to middleagesrecovery.com scroll down and fill out the your story form and you could hear your story right on the air that'd be cool. Finally, the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. If you get something out of it, share the love and help grow the RMA movement. And uh, yeah. because we constantly beg people to send us their stories, they do. Yeah, we got a story. We do. Do you want me to read it or do you want to read it? I'll read it. All right. How about that? It's from Ryan. Ryan. My name is Ryan and I too am a middle- Sorry, my name is Ryan and I am 43 and I am officially recovering from addiction in my middle ages. I am two months sober and have good momentum going at the moment and I feel a sense of freedom from the rough past six years of alcohol and cocaine addiction. I I attribute my newfound recovery to a combination of two techniques. I just finished a program called the Freedom Model from Upstate New York. Hmm. Ever hear of that? No, I spent a lot of time in Upstate New York. Me too, too. (laughs) but I've never heard of the Freedom Model. I want to learn more. Um, I also, at the same time, decided to go to a rural A group, AA group in my area. There I met my sponsor and he took me through the steps in rapid fashion. And I've been through the steps twice in two months and started on my third time, third session, I guess. Wow. That's three. (laughs) Do you get an award for the number of times? I don't know if you're supposed to do that. (laughs) Okay, you're done? Back to one. Uh, The Freedom Model is far from a 12 Steps program, and I found it very helpful. But I also found freedom in the 12 Steps. I decided to not overthink either method and not take them super serious, and it's simply working for me. I no longer obsess over alcohol and cocaine. Excellent. Uh, Being sober simply makes me happier after a lifetime of substance abuse of different types. I'm glad I found your podcast, and I look forward to listening to more of Mm. your episodes. I have a three-year-old son and a girlfriend of 20 years, and things are going well. I would be glad to go deeper into my story with details if asked, but I have a hard time writing in this little box. (laughs) (laughs) That was deliberate. It was a test to see if you could do it. 
Uh, email me if you want a detailed sort of timeline of events, which start with me as a 15-year-old tripping on LSD at raves to a 41-year-old binge drinking for four days for days straight and ending up blackout drunk and stealing a car for no reason in Syracuse, New York, and ending up in jail while being a manager of a 300-acre farm and teaching children how to raise chickens as a 4-H club leader. Awesome. Oh, man. Uh, I do want more details That sounds that. like a trilogy. <laughs> so That's uh, a trilogy. Mike R. at middleagesrecovery.com if you would like to share uh, your story or if, Ryan, you would like to give me more details about what it's like to be... Uh, all of Driving that. drunk uh, to 4 H meetings. <laughs> I'd be really interested to hear that. That sounds good. And, um, you know, we don't have a review today. But what I do <laughs> when we don't have a review is we do Monsters Speak. Yay. Speak, speak, speak. Um, <laughs> so there's a couple of things. Um, sometimes some of the Monsters, this is from our private group. Uh, it's on Facebook. If you find us, you just ask to join. And, um, so we had a few people celebrating sober versary type things, uh, and we had some um, interesting uh, back and forths here. So one post was Allison says a hundred days AF. That's alcohol free. Uh, so uh, thankful to have communities like this one. Uh, another post was um, Melissa, and she says Happy Halloween, monsters. This was my first Halloween with my baby last year was COVID canceled in the year before that I was 39 weeks pregnant. The two years before that I was secretly drinking and starting arguments, <laughs> probably being strange or annoying. Uh, so glad to remember everything and genuinely had fun. Christine says, I am 65 days sober as fuck. Oh, AF is alcohol free. I know, I always think as fuck. <laughs> Had a doctor's appointment yesterday to see what x-rays said about my back, only to find out it was an accidental find on them. Seems like I have an aneurysm about four centimeters in size. Holy crap. How do you guys keep from using after receiving crappy news? Uh, because that voice in my head is telling me how easy it is to go and get a case of beer and some painkillers all day. Yeah, I Damn. thought, um, yeah, wow. That's some heavy shit, man. But, you know, it's, it's a great question. Like, what do you do, um, you know, when something bad happens and you're sober? Like, for so many years, it was, this happened to me, therefore, that's why I'm using. Right. Or I had a horrible day. So now something goes wrong. You're stressed out. I mean, what do we do to not drink? Well, or, I mean, the first thing I would imagine is if you play the tape forward, uh, what drinking with a four-inch aneurysm in your stomach looks like, it's probably not good for you, yeah. right? I mean, I always, I always find playing the tape forward to be the, the best way. But our Monksters also had a collection of excellent advice. Yeah, Sarah S. Uh, writes, um, but you won't because, you know, really know that uh, buying that case of beer and painkillers might ease the pain for a bit, but after you'll be right back where you started. So I say, do what the doctors tell you to do. Reach for other things than the booze and pills. Uh, we only have one life. We deserve to, therefore, live that one life, being happy, liking ourselves, loving others, etc. Easy to say, I know, but what's the alternative? I think you uh, know the answer to that. Good yep. luck, and you can do this. Yeah. Very Frank says that grabbing a case of beer isn't going to help anything. Uh, instead, grab something else you'll enjoy. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
not sure that's what Frank had in mind, but uh, or he says a different food treat. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a dessert you like? Uh, just an idea. But the beer and pills are not the way to go. Ew. Remember, if you feel like drinking, just grab something just you like. Just grab something you like. <laughs> Give it a yank. And uh, next is Melissa M. I find that the idea of playing the tape forward, which Aha. is what Mike was just saying, is the most helpful to me whenever I'm in a stressful situation and uh, and I think, screw it, thinking about how I'm going to feel in the morning and how I might embarrass myself and undo all the work I've done is most helpful. So sorry, you can do it. Um, Who's this Nat X fellow? He says, the, oh, you should read this, it's yours. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes um, I write things and capitalize them for emphasis. Right. So the emphasis is on the right syllable. The main thing I scream at myself is that, that's not even English, I'm sorry. The main thing I scream at myself in that situation is using will not make whatever problem I am having better, only infinitely worse and more painful. It's important not to think of using as something that will soothe you or help you deal with your problem. Mm. It isn't a reward and it won't make it better. It's not a reward. You got to get that in your head. That's what I'm training myself to do, Nat X. In fact, I just had that exact um, conversation with Annie Grace. Um, That's right. You had a discussion with the doyen of recovery yesterday, the queen bee. (laughs) Yeah, that was a pretty exciting exciting 35 minutes. Um, You know, we, we talked a little bit. I mean, I told my story, which I hate to do. I hate going over my story, but I did it, and um, it was very cool. Was it cathartic? Did you feel better afterwards? I don't know. I was buzzing for a while yeah. after that, man. I was like thinking about it, and um, kind of like on the Annie Grace, kind of like the the uh, Joseph W. Nouse interview from last week, right? Um, you know, it, for a while, it took me a while to come down, mm-hmm. you know, from that. I felt so good after doing that with her. It was it. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, once it's over, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was good. It'll be out and probably takes like three months or something. Yeah, she takes a while. Um, She's got she banks a whole bunch of them and then releases them a little bit. We talk a little bit about our podcast, and um, I actually invite Miss Grace to come on the show. Mm, um, what did she say? She sort of nodded and <laughs> moved on. You know, she she acknowledged that I said it, but acknowledge that she wouldn't acknowledge answering it call my people yeah <laughs> please um, well you know we we try i tried to get her early on and that's what precipitated my invitation to come up on the right. show right she's like no any uh, or her person said no any uh, usually uh, goes on uh, podcasts with a larger audience well, ouch you know oh well. but um we have a larger audience now yeah, well, now now that we've both done it like maybe she'll change her mind. That'd be nice. I think uh, I think the audience would benefit from hearing something right from her. Yeah, don't you? Yeah, she was great on uh, on Dopey. Uh, oh, that's right. You know, I forgot about that. She was good on that. But we had Halloween, everyone. We did Halloween. Were we going to talk about coming down from the Joseph Naus interview? Oh, or did we? We sort of did. Did everybody love the Joseph Naus interview or what? Almost I mean, everybody. Almost. <laughs> We had at least one bad review, but um, that was so much. That was so much fun. Uh, the whole experience is just, you know, everybody out there knows how much we've been into his books, you know, since the start of this podcast, and mm. um, we talked about it quite a bit. But just to like, I don't know, it's so hard to explain to have him sitting here and uh, he hear his voice over my headphones when I'm used to listening to it. 
Right. You know, it's just, it's so crazy. And then there's just to like have lunch with him and his it's, wife. It's a weird out of body experience. Yeah, it really you know? is. And I, I think he, he got a little, <laughs> he was a little like, uh, he put on his Instagram, I didn't come up with the title of yeah. the episode because you were like, we sit down with recovery guru Joseph Dowson, yeah. you know. A recovery expert guru. Because when he was here and we were like, uh, you know, we call, said something like he was like uh, a model for spiritual life and recovery. He's like, wait, where's my wife? I yeah. <laughs> let her hear that. But it was great. I could have I could have talked to him for another ten years. You know, yeah, he, he's the, probably the only uh, person that it's made me sit there and really consider the virtues of a, of a twelve step program yeah. rather than the critique of it. And um, he really, really is so genuine about what it does for him and yeah. you know the part how it is a part of it and i've seen lots of stories like that that's why i still hold on to mm-hmm. a lot of it because that is a lot of the experience that i've had well um, and the, the not to you know not to telegraph too much but the the book we're covering uh, Zolovitz, you know while she has a, a a pretty lengthy critique of 12 step she also thinks it has a uh, important role to play in in recovery in general. Yeah, and I'm noticing, I noticed that about Dopamine Nation and I noticed that about Mm -hmm. um, Unbroken Brain that we just did. Yeah. More and more I'm seeing this kind of, it's a critique, like they're they're hitting hard against 12-step, but they're also putting it in its proper place. Yes. And and not saying get rid of it all. You know, I'm seeing a lot more of people um, writing these books kind of still making room for it and not mm-hmm. trying to replace it. And you say, like, there is a place for a support community. A hundred percent. Yes. Just don't make it like the answer. Right. Uh, you know, and don't make it as like medical treatment because it is not. Right. right? You, don't, yeah, you don't prescribe prayer and confession for diabetes. Right. You know, I mean, you might. Uh, yeah. Then you'd be, you know. Right. Lose your medical license. Um, Halloween. So, Halloween. That was something. Yeah, Halloween. I, I, we actually never hooked up. No, we well, were briefly, supposed to. Well, briefly. We, oh, we, we, right. I passed by your house. With the car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Halloween, it was, it's, it was so nutty. My, my oldest son has this, like, girlfriend type of thing. Mm. And now he, so we met up with her at 1 o'clock, and I got to meet her mom and step, and his her stepdad and uh, walk around and so they did this weird trick-or-treat like in the like at lunchtime mm. which was just awkward because did they get like yeah they got some candy stuff. or ramen they got or, some candy <laughs> yeah i was real surprised because i know i wouldn't be ready here um walked around for three hours and then we went to go meet up with what i thought was you and your son <laughs> but you did a drive-by beforehand to check out the scene. I was checking out the scene. I was going to drive by, and I wanted to look at what you had set up since you were oh, bragging about thank it. Thank you. So I was like, oh, we got to see what uh, Ben's dad has is, is got going on in front of the house. In any case, we saw there was a couple of kids, I guess, that were there that mm. Noah wasn't aware was going to be there. Yeah. And we, you know, he ducked and <laughs> said, Dad, keep going. Well... Uh, you know, in all fairness, we were not aware that those kids were going to be there until like the day before because the kid's mother has a tendency I, to insert I know, those and I kids love, into like... I, I love her too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, she's, I've she's known great. her a very, very long time. I feel bad, you know. But, but it's always like a, a difficult situation because, you know, Ben had made plans with a not only with Noah and with another friend, yeah. you know, and the other friend also had had enough of the other two after about 20 minutes. Really? And, All right, it's and, not just Well, Noah. they did, went out and, and did a first round of trick-or-treating in, in the local area, 
mm-hmm. right? And then they accident, accidentally, because, you know, the hillbilly kid from up the street yes. like, led them <laughs> down to the neighborhood where we were supposed to meet you guys. And so they were down there already, and yeah. it was just like a mess. They didn't stick to the... And so the, the other kid got tired, and he was like, I'm not, I'm going home. I have something to do at home, he said, on my computer, and he took off. <laughs> so leaving Ben and these other two, so it was, yeah. you know, it was I'm, just a mess. And, you know, then we, you and I eventually ended up in, in the Candyland neighborhood, which... Mm. I think we talked about this last year, but it's a it's a, a area of like I don't know five or six square blocks that's sort of set apart from um, right on the water. Yeah, uh, modest houses, you know, not like a ritzy area, you know, very nice, nice, nice but they kind of closed the little neighborhood down, and it becomes this uh, area where the kids can just run feral and the parents yeah. run feral as well, right. drinking their faces off and everything. So you and I ended up in that same area, yeah, so at we, opposite ends, <laughs> and never our paths never crossed. No, that in was like weird. an hour. And a half, so so we tried, folks. But I mean, ultimately, it was a good time. I mean, every year, I, I'm always I was actually amazed at the parents' costumes. Yeah. this year, um, I don't always get dressed up. I mean, I don't have anything against people that get dressed up, yeah. but whatever. This year, I just I didn't do it, and um, and but I saw some really elaborate adult costumes, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know. What do you think about that? Isn't it a little weird? And when you make eye contact you know, with them right. and you're not wearing it and they are, right. like, I don't know. I always, there's this awkwardness where I'm like, I'm just, yeah, I don't know if I feel like I'm bad because I didn't, you know, show up. I don't really, you know, I don't know if it's awkward. I just think it's it's weird because they're usually, the ones that are in the costumes are usually the drunkest. Um, yeah, that's so, true. you know, I don't know, you know, Alan, right? Yeah. So he and his buddy went as Hans and Franz from the Saturday Night Live skit. Did you <laughs> yes. see those guys? Okay. We, we, we did a bit about that. So they, um, they were pulling a, uh, a wagon full of beer. And uh, by the time they got to me, they were <laughs> absolutely shit-faced. Oh, really? Yeah, they were like handed me a weight plate and were like, wanted me to like participate in the skit. And I think after like a few seconds, they saw this look on my face of like, just a little bit of fear yeah. because I don't know what drunk people are unpredictable. You know what I mean? And these guys are great. I love, I love, yeah. but, um, I get nervous around drunk people now, which is a very weird thing for me to say. Like, cause I just don't know where they're, they're going to pre- go or right. what they're going to do. And you know, it's unpredictable. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't see as much. I, I saw the, the, um, the coolers though. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see actual drunk people, but I saw a lot you know, of drinking and, you know, I never did that. I don't know. Did you ever do that? Yeah, uh, I did that I, I, in a I big never... way a couple of years. Yeah. I got absolutely shit-faced down there. Yeah. But, I mean, you know. <laughs> it's the way they do it around here. Uh, uh, it is. It is. But Yeah, so we, we got there and, you know, Noah always, my oldest, he always ends up now with these girls who I've never seen before. He's a player, your kid. Yeah, I'm like, who are these girls? And he goes, oh, this is, you know, he names them. I've never heard of these girls before. Mm. So he spent the whole time he ran into, you know, and we just sort of followed these girls around with Noah. So it's my son is weird. very, very jealous of his uh, savoir faire. <laughs> he really is. Drives uh, him crazy. I don't get it. Um, so did you celebrate your uh, uh, wedding anniversary? This right. Week? So as everyone knows, October is the month where everything happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> birthdays, anniversaries. Uh, it was my 15th anniversary, 15 years, um, 
And uh, so we—that's amazing. That's congratulations. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it's a miracle we're still married for a number of reasons. <laughs> yeah. Happy anniversary, honey. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's a testament to how much work we put into it. Yes, um, and we did. We still are putting so much work into it. But um, oh, your wife is uh, wonderful. Well, yeah. I had a nice chat with her the other day when I was dropping off Ben. Oh, yeah. At the uh, at the house about you know ADHD five hundred fours yeah you know, that kind of thing yeah um, we've been dealing with that too yeah. um, but so you went to uh, a local place yeah we went to uh, Fancy Spring uh, the, the fanciest Fancy Spring I like it it's it's let's called call it Fancy Spring Fancy Spring this is the fanciest restaurant I'd say in town by a long shot you know I think it's a price fix or a prefix. It was like $85 a person. Mm. That doesn't include, you know. Drinks. Drinks. Um, it was very nice. And I had all these, um, I had a gift certificate from Mike and his wife you know, when, when I uh, had my graduation party. Oh, right. They gave me a, a fancy spring uh, gift card. <laughs> and so we got to use that. We used that and another gift card we got. <laughs> and I still had to shell out yeah. like 50 bucks. Yeah. That's how expensive it was. Well, I don't know. Do you remember when our wives went there recently? And, and they bought a $100 bottle of wine? They, That's what I heard. Erin came home and I wasted. Grew, yeah, we were talking about this the other day and she's like, that was the most expensive dinner I ever had. Even more than anything you and I have ever been to. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> I but, heard a little bit about it too, but kind of like, when did that happen? Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's. Why do our wives, our wives get drunk together and we get sober together? Hey, okay. It works, right? <laughs> sure. But, you know, the thing I find really interesting about Fancy Spring is that the owner is in recovery. Yeah. And, and they have the most elaborate wine list. Sure. And, and they push the cocktails like crazy. And they were one of the one of the uh, restaurants during COVID that had the uh, slushy cocktails to go out the window, too. Mm-hmm. So they, they definitely capitalize on the booze. And, and in fact, the owner... Uh, half of his wine cellar is kept in his house up the block. So, like, if they ever run out of something, they send somebody to his house to go to the wine cellar yep. and pick it up. So, Absolutely. that's I don't know how you manage recovery being in the restaurant business. You I have really to don't. have your recovery game has to be so strong because um, right. I mean, he's in the thick of it too. They're there. You know, he's got to be there all week. That place is packed. Yeah. You know, um, but it, but it goes to show you, like, for so for example, I don't know if you saw yesterday. In the Times, there was an article about him, the New York Times. They're, they're opening a second thing, a separate restaurant, which is connected to the first one by that atrium. Yeah. And it's going to be 10 seats only. He does all the cooking. Yeah. And it's $250 a person. I heard about this. Yeah. I did hear about it. It's Before wine. Amazing. Yeah. I definitely want to do that because some of the shit that I had at that meal. Yeah, he can really. It was like, oh, I don't even want to get into it. It was just, it was borderline pornographic, you know, cuisine. It's yeah. so good. Every um, bit of the dish is th- yep. well thought out. He's, yep. a, he's an amazing chef. Um, I'll do that, man. I that that You and me. It. We could do it. <laughs> Our wives can spend $400 there. <laughs> we can do it too. Done. <laughs> so, you know, well, when, and we got there. For some reason, I decided to... You know, they have wine glasses on the table, and I turned the wine glass upside down uh, and just, you know, plopped right. it down, waiting for the guy. And 
I don't know why I did that. If it's not, I don't know if it's something I always do, but I wanted to just, because it's our anniversary and they knew it, mm-hmm. you make sure that, you know, I wasn't going to get, you know, poured or whatever. And so when the waiter came over, he was like, oh, what's this? Did you do this? Uh, was this supposed to signal something? Like he, I, you know, and I was <laughs> like, well, yeah, it's that I don't drink and I don't want any alcohol. That's all that means. Oh, okay. And then when he brought our complimentary um you know, anniversary champagne. Mm. They brought me, you know, my wife got champagne and then I was brought this mocktail. That was really good. So maybe that has something to do with uh, Chef Jesse. The mocktail you had had cucumber in it? Yeah. It's really yeah, good. I've had that one there because I've said, I just say to them, ha- have them make me something, a, m- a mocktail without any alcohol in it, you know, and <laughs> right. they do it. They and do. it's usually pretty good. Yeah. So I, mean, I know, like that. I could mocktail that culture. Uh, is great. Uh, so that was a lot of fun, and congratulations to my wife. 15 years. <laughs> congratulations she did to it. both of you. She really did it. Uh, but um, I don't know. You've had some bad stuff go on lately. Yeah, I mean, it was it kind could... of a shitty week, man. I mean, just for, you know, there's the normal stuff. And then last Friday, I, I, in, in the span of four hours, uh, I found out that uh, a, an old friend of mine died. Um uh, we, I haven't spoken to him in many years, but you know the times that we did spend together, we were, we were fairly close. He was the yeah, husband of a, of a good friend of my late wife's, uh, and uh, I I don't know, but I suspect it was either uh, you know a substance related passing or yeah. you know perhaps self inflicted. Um, so that I found that about that early in the day. Then I drove by my old childhood home because my sister is uh, coming up for. The holidays, and I was wanted to see, you know, what, and it had been torn <laughs> torn down. Right? Yeah, there's just nothing but a a, a pit in the earth where Jesus. it used to be. What's um, that like? That was weird. I I parked the car and I oh. walked into the yard or what was left of it, but it was unrecognizable because they'd also taken down all the trees, like. 40, 50-year-old wow. trees, which was really weird because, um, you, you know, t- my dad planted those, yeah. you know, and he spent his whole life on the landscaping of that, and they just ripped it out to put a mansion up there. So wow. I had mixed feelings about it because, you know, my childhood there was kind of, eh, you know, my mom was, you know, drinking a lot and stuff, and but, you know, it's still kind of weird to see your... Yeah, you know, you're the place that you grew up just disappear yeah. into, into a hole in the earth. I, you know, it's like you really can't go back home now. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that was Dan Rather's book was called "You Can Never Go Home" or something. Maybe it was, and the fact that you know, just being able to visit your childhood home or physically, it, you know, you know, but to have it, you know, really removed like that, physically wiped off the face of the earth. Can uh, I tell you a secret though? What? Like part of me, as I was driving away, felt like relieved that it was not there anymore. Interesting. Which can, it was like I was I was now. very upset by it, but I was also like at the same time liberated in some That's sense. Interesting. So yeah. like you can move on. Yeah, I guess maybe like the house is destroyed. Maybe that's like all of the the negativity from certain parts of my childhood have have now the physical manifestation of them is now gone. Huh. You know, yeah, I don't know. It. I should talk to a therapist. You should probably, probably talk to a therapist uh, about that. And then, since great things or shitty things happen in threes, uh, I got back from my little escapade uh, looking at destroyed real estate to find out that a, a colleague at work that I've known for 13 years uh, is in the hospital with what appears to be terminal cancer. Oh, so um, yeah, she has uh, two two daughters uh, in college, and you know. Married and uh, really smart attorney. How old? Um, 
probably just a couple years older than me, maybe late 50s. Yeah, geez. You know? So, uh, I don't know, man. That just kind of set me... Set me back on my heels a little bit for last weekend going into Halloween. I was just kind of thinking you know, about a lot of that stuff on my end. mind, really. Yeah. I mean, what the thing with my friend, though, you know, I've noticed that at this age, you know, in, the, in, in, your, in your 50s, like people who have not taken the road of like getting well and physical fitness and all that stuff are starting to really yeah. drop. Yeah. You know, I lost yep. another friend like a few months ago who just, Drank his way from his twenties yeah. all the way through, and then died in a detox. You know, yeah, your body can't can't hold up. Um, that's it's just, crazy. It makes me. It gives me an incredible sense of gratitude, yeah. you know, and gratefulness that I I was able to pull out of that nosedive before it was too late. You yeah, because you're on the other. Well, let's say you're on the other side of. You're not headed in that direction, and I forget where I was reading this, but some speaker in recovery says if you're not getting you know, recovery, you're getting sicker. If you're not yeah. getting better, you're getting worse. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like no stasis. Uh, you know, you're either actively going to keep trying to get, you know, make yourself better. Those who ain't busy born are busy dying, as Dylan says. Bob Dylan. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Bob Dylan. But um, so hopefully if things bad things happen in threes, that's the final That's it. Thing. I'm done, and, right? Uh, from yeah. now on. Um, guys, we had um, this amazing thing happen on the RMA private group. Um, Grant B. decided to do a book club. He did. And it was so weird because, you know, we, we decided to cover this book for this episode around the same time as, you know, we were thinking about doing that book club. Um, so it kind of all worked together. Um and if you weren't at it, it was really cool. Um, yeah, so we're going to be not only scheduling more of those, but I think we're also trying to come together around doing just uh, recovery meetings. Yeah, like you when know? we were doing the book club, um, for a little bit, we when we weren't talking about the book, we did kind of just like some check-in stuff. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize that, you know, this we could really do a great recovery meeting. So, yeah. You know, we don't have to close with the Lord's Prayer. We don't have to have a preamble from AA. We can just come together. Um, I got these really cool chips where, you know, it's basically like a topic thing. Mm-hmm. Like you reach in and you pull, pull one out and it says like gratitude. Right. And then... We talk about gratitude. Yeah, and, and let's that, do that it. Could be a lot of fun. It's just we got to get time zones right because we have people in the UK and over there, and then I don't even know what day it is in Australia. Somebody should yeah. probably tell me how that works. But <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like twenty seven hours <laughs> ahead. Right. Or yeah. something. so it's really only a two hour time change. It's right. just on a different day. Yeah, that, yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. We'd like to get that going. If you guys are into that, uh, let us know in the in the. In the Facebook group. Also, I posted the first RMA uh, music playlist this week. Oh, yeah. I took suggestions from uh, monksters in the private group about songs having to do with addiction and recovery. And I coalesced them and put them all into a Spotify playlist along with some of my other uh, mm. personal picks. Uh, yeah, looks Did you cool. send any picks? No, I didn't. you got to send me some picks. How do I do that? I, I also made the, huh. the playlist open source so anybody can add to it. All right. 
If you have Spotify. I'm sure. I think I do. Yeah. I must. We, I know we're on Spotify. Um, we are on Spotify. Yeah. Our podcast, yes. right? Yes. Theoretically. Theoretically. So enjoy that if you guys want to listen yeah. to it. Yeah. And one of these days I'll be able to add my band um, that, you know, opens the show and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, still working with getting permission. You should sell that MP3 because I've been sending that thing out like yeah. uh, to like person after person. They're very people are very even uh, Joseph Naus was very uh, impressed yeah, people are uh, yeah. digging it. You know, yes, and, yes. Uh, that was very cool. I have to stand up because my back hurts. Okay, all right. So, so are we? Have we fucked around long enough? I think we fucked around okay. <clears throat> long enough. Um, let's get into the main topic of the day. The main topic of today is the book, Unbroken Brain, which was the subject of the RMA Book Club this past week. Uh, it's written by the author Maya Zalovitz, and I figured out the easy way to pronounce her name yeah. is to forget the S exists. Okay, it's, it's just Zalovitz. It's Zalovitz. Zalovitz. Uh, she's also, um, okay, so she's the author of the book. It's been widely recognized as an important advance in thinking about the nature of addiction and how to cope with it personally and politically. She also uh, wrote a book before this, Help at Any Cost, which was about the troubled teen industry. And um, the documentary that we went through a couple weeks ago, Mm -hmm. what was the name of that one again? Uh, The Last Stop. The Last Stop. She's actually interviewed in that documentary. Uh, She's one of the the talking heads in there because she literally wrote the book on the troubled teen industry, Um, uh, which makes sense because um, she's very into... um, developmental psychology and neurology. And so this current book that she wrote, uh, A Revolutionary Way of Understanding Addiction, is the subtitle to Unbroken Brain, uh, posits the theory that addiction is uh, not an organic brain disease, but rather a learning disorder. Right. It's so interesting. A learning disorder. Yeah. When I first heard her say that, I was... I don't know, like, it really kind of blew my mind a little bit. Learning disorders um, and how if you look at the condition as a learning disorder, um, it can sort of point the way towards uh, um, a cohesive way of approaching treatment, prevention, and policy around addictive behavior. Um, She she says that like autism, addictive behavior is on a spectrum, uh, and, and uh, they can be a normal response to an extreme situation. Um, she also, I listened to her, her on another podcast where she says that basically a lot of addiction is sort of like this, the same system in our body um, that like, like focuses on love and relationships. Yeah. Addiction is sort of like a rerouted love relationship into yeah, she makes, drugs. She makes a alcohol. lot of the, uh, the comparisons to love uh, and addiction. Yeah. Uh, and, and so what it, the book does is it combines her personal story with, uh, um, you know, her distillation of the science and, and the research behind it. And uh, her personal story is actually <laughs> really, really pretty wild. Uh, yeah. It threw me off too when I was listening to the book because, you know, you get used to listening to her talk about being, you know, she's, very straight laced. She's, yes. you know, or at least the person reading it. And then yeah. she goes back to her story and it's like <laughs> doing blow in the bathroom on dead tour. I mean, she's been recovered for like 25 years, but she, in the early 80s, um, and through, I guess, 1988 or 89, uh, she had a huge cocaine addiction and heroin addiction and um, followed the Grateful Dead around. And, you know, I found this really interesting because that was sort of my story back then as well. You know, we were, we 
for all I know, we crossed paths somewhere because yeah, we were both in, in the New York. <laughs> we were both in the sort of the New York dead scene. But I mean, she was she was one of those folks that you know her her boyfriend at the time was was a drug dealer for the like she would sell drugs to the Grateful Dead when they were in town. So she got all these crazy um, uh, experiences. And uh, the one that kind of made me kind of sit up and take notice was the first time that she ever did a line of blow. It was uh, offered to her by Jerry Garcia in a hotel room in New Haven. And she was 17. And I, I did the math. Jerry was 40 at the time. And as he handed her the plate with the line on it, he's like, you know, do you want some cocaine? He's like, there's, there's some weird, there's some weird karma around cocaine, man. You know, uh, indeed, right? Like, um, that's amazing to think about. Like that, a substance can have its own yeah. karma attached to it. But I mean, you know, I, at that point, I would have given my left arm to be doing cocaine all night with Jerry Garcia in a seedy hotel room in New Haven. I mean, why not? Right? <laughs> yeah. it must have been an interesting conversation. But, um, but you know, then she goes on in her personal history to say that you know she. And a couple of years later, I think it was the spring 85 tour. She was in Philadelphia to see the dead. And she's like, the first night I went and I saw the show like usual. But for the rest of the run, I just stayed in my hotel room shooting coke. <laughs> you know, it's like eventually the addiction overwhelms everything else. And, you yeah. know, she, you know, never mind the fact that you have backstage passes to the Grateful Dead mm-hmm. and you can participate in all that insanity. When the drugs get a hold of you to the point where all you want to do yep. is sit in the room and, and do drugs, you yeah. know. I remember leaving a couple of dead shows early in, in the late 80s to take the train back to the Bronx to score crack. And yeah, score crack, man. You know? Like and, your world gets so small. Yep. Um, I know my world, uh, you know, chasing that shit around. Um, anyway. Um, well, she makes some a really, one of the first things she starts to talk about that really grabbed my attention is... You know this idea of um, of it being this like a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, I never thought of that because she starts comparing it to um, like autism or some of those behaviors that kids do to soothe themselves. Yes, I don't know, like itching or you know tapping the table, repeating certain words over and over to yourself or out loud. Yeah. yeah. So she says addiction could have developed during childhood as like a coping me- mechanism. Uh, and it's like a search for safety and comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks about how 90% of addictions start in adolescence. And most illegal drug addictions end by the age of 30. That's another line yeah. of, you know, which she talks about as um, addiction, I guess, like ADHD is outgrown. In in some cases, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most cases. But, um, I mean, the, the the corollary to that is like, she says that this, you know, the substantial majority of people who try drugs or particular uh, potentially addictive activities like gambling don't become addicts, right? And those that do end up giving it up, you know, by the time they're in their thirties, like like ADHD, which makes makes it is another argument for being a maladaptive behavior, right? Because if it was the substance itself, right, that was addictive, you would expect a much higher rate of addiction, right? Right. And she she brought up a really interesting study on. Uh, on rats that, um, you know, it's so multifaceted how people become addicted to, to, a diff- to a substance because there, there are some rats that you give them uh, drugs in a certain set or a certain setting <laughs> and, you know, they can do a certain amount of it. Like if a you, pool hall? Or- yeah, a little rat pool hall, right? <laughs> but, it, but, it, but then, so, so they, and they develop a tolerance to it over time, right? right? So they can take more and more of it. If you take the rat 
out of that setting and put it in another setting and give it the same amount of drugs, it ODs. What? Yeah. Isn't that fucking crazy? <laughs> These poor rats. Yeah. Wait, so so it's interesting. It's like how much the environment yeah. you know, does for that it. That just blew my mind. But Huh. Um, rat, rat jazz. Yeah, so addiction is specifically a learning disorder. It, it's um, you people learn to be addicts. They develop habits of pleasure, action, reaction, and that's what makes up the addiction. Right. So then, the, and then that changes how we look to treating it. You know, um, like so. So that's why for me, I think cognitive behavioral therapy works. You know, in my case, because I'm relearning, and I talk about that. Um, a lot on how I had to relearn how to cope with life um, to stay sober. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, yeah. So, I mean, how how is that going to change how we treat it? Does that mean that you can't um, punish somebody into learning? Well, yeah. she goes you know. she goes through the statistics on that, and you know, I think the example she uses is like you can't cure like compulsive hand washing by banning soap, right? Right. People are just going to go out and do something else. And so she goes through the statistics which show that it's really a dismal um, uh, rate of, of uh, curing addiction by incarceration or by banning substances. And and she uses the example, her own example, right? Uh, The Rockefeller drug laws in New York. So you would think like, because the drug laws in New York in the eighties were so strict, you know, if you got caught with three ounces of weed you, you faced a mandatory minimum of 15 years to life. Right. Uh, you would think that, you know, if punishing people, uh, you know, was effective. <laughs> there'd be no addiction. There'd be no addiction. Right. But um, the problem, of, and then, of course, she gets into how, you know, the drug, drug laws, the way they were enforced, the way they came to be are, are basically, um, you know, race-based from the beginning because they had to take, they had to take the marijuana um, oh God! Stuff out of the Rockefeller drug laws because yeah. it was all the white kids that were getting arrested with pot, facing 50, you know fifteen years in prison, and the middle class yeah. uh, parents, doctors, and lawyers were like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> yeah, it's so you crazy know? when she talks about older examples of the way that the, just the racist drug policies, you know, and how blatant. You know, it, it was just amazing, um, and so um, the drug laws were kind of used in a way to discriminate against um you know other races mm. um, because i mean because of addiction though if addiction is a developmental disorder then having like a war on drugs is actually meaningless right, right. it's pointless <laughs> because um you know you're not attacking the, the problem people will become addicted to something else they'll become addicted to gambling to sex to you know process and, and that's what you're seeing right mm-hmm. now right yeah and it, that dopamine addiction um just like uh, from Dopamine Nation. I don't know. I thought Dopamine Nation and this book did kind of work well together because it's trying to get to the heart of um, what drives us to these compulsive behaviors. Um, you know, and I think this is starting to get us past that. She definitely talks, uh, she has a whole chapter where she goes into like dopamine. And I thought that was really interesting because um, Dr. Lemke, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, seems to think that dopamine is sort of this sine qua non of addiction, right? It's, it's, we're driven by this dopamine regulation system. Zalovitz is sort of a little less, um, buy into the idea that it's all, it's all dopamine. Um, yeah, she's more of an, it's like experiential. It's a developmental. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, dopamine definitely plays a role, but it's not it's not the only it's not the the only game in town. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, she's putting a lot more yeah emphasis on the the learning aspect of it. But then you know it goes. So she talks a lot about. Um, childhood experiences, right? Um, so she gets into like what has created also what what's made us have these maladaptive behaviors, and um, one thing she talks about is, and they call them ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, mm-hmm. and their effects on future uh, addictive behaviors. Uh, like so, just having one uh, ACE, like losing a parent. Um, or witnessing domestic violence before the age of 15 doubles your odds of substance uh, use disorders found in a a study covering the Swedish population. And that's because um, if you have these adverse childhood experiences, you're you're typically more likely to learn maladaptive coping strategies, which then translate into addiction, I guess is the argument. Yeah. Right? That that makes sense. Um, And and she really goes into, and what I like about the book is she goes really into the science of like epigenetics, for example, to show how, you know, the reason that, um, you know, sometimes you, you see genetic, um, yeah, this was uh, really connections between like parent and kid and grandkid all having like a susceptibility to, to addiction. Uh, and while, you know, some of this, the scientists would say, well, there's a gene for it. Really, the, the, they've done this study in epigenetics that basically says that you can pass trauma down through generations yeah. based on like gene switching when a gene turns on and off. That's the craziest thing. So if you're scratching your head out there, uh, I was definitely scratching my head too when I first read this. But she's saying that basically the sins of the father will be visited you know, upon the grandson. In other words... If you go through trauma now, uh, in two generations or a generation down the line, um, those children will have the negative effects of that. Is that what that, that means? That's basically what they're saying. And uh, yeah, so that in a way is passing it down, you know. But the fact that it's so controlled by the, your environment, um, I guess that's something that we didn't consider. Um, so yeah, then definitely if they can prove that. That's as close as they're going to get to having an addict gene. Yeah. Um, and that's why we have to break the cycle. That's why we talk about this so much, even with domestic violence and, and uh, addiction, and education. You know, you be the first person of your family to graduate college, or you be the first one to break the cycle of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, because until you do, you know, your future generations are going to be trapped. They're going to be trapped in it. Yeah, I don't know how many generations it flows down from, but I mean, and I wonder if when they did the study, did they tease out, you know, the fact that uh, while trauma may be passed down through the genes, behavior is also, can also be passed down, right? Because what's the expression, hurt people hurt people, right? right. right? Yeah, I hated that one, but yeah. <laughs> hurt people hurt people. <laughs> so, you know, is, is it the trauma that's being passed down genetically or is it the trauma that's being passed down by behaviorally you know and i don't know if they controlled for for that as well but interesting <laughs> i mean in a, some sense it doesn't really matter does it i mean i don't know it's you know does, does any of this matter you know I go back to i always say that you know if your house is on fire you, you just run out of the house you don't sit around and try and right. figure out who started it why they started it you, you know, yes 
But once you put the fire out, there's a whole bunch of lawyers and insurance adjusters that are very, very interested in how the, how the fire started. And because, you know, that, that determines what happens next, right? So, you know, you can put out the fire, but then you, ultimately you do have to kind of figure out what, what started the fire in the first place, right? Yeah, that, you know, if you want to prevent it from happening again, you know, but that goes back to something that we've always, we talked about, you know, regrets. And at what point do you stop looking back and, and just move forward? But we have to learn. Um, we have to learn from these, uh, from, from these things. Otherwise, we're doomed to repeat them. Um, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, we always talk about in addiction is that kids of addicts are going to be more likely, um, more likely to uh, become addicts. I mean, that also has to do with their seeing their parents do it probably, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, you know, it makes it harder and harder to not. Um, but what I found is interesting is she says that in general, the percentage of people who try illegal ju- drugs to mm-hmm. those who become addicts is like extremely low. Like 10%. It's, yeah. I mean, and that is fairly low. So is Dr. Carl Hart right then that there are these, you know, grownups who can do drugs because such a small percentage get addicted? Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying Dr. Carl Hart is right about anything. <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, because addiction is multifaceted, right? If it was, you know, it's not just physical. It's clearly not just physical because you have, um, you can be born with a dependence on drugs if, you're, if your mother was doing drugs when you were pregnant, but you can't be born with an addiction to drugs because you don't know what you're addicted to, right? Well, right. And she says that, you know, how can you reach for something you don't know exists? Exactly. Um, it's like when people who, who get surgery... And they get opiates in the hospital, and then they go home, and they feel like they have the flu. Right. They don't know it's because they're then detoxing they from opiates. Yeah. You know? So they have no idea. They just they feel it. But so the, you learn. You learn the behavior. That's yeah. what she's saying. Like, it's you know, a learned behavior. Yeah. Um, in the last part of her book, uh, she, she actually says, I think it was chapters 15 and 16, she talks about the current treatments, too. She gets into a little bit about... You know, what's currently being prescribed mm-hmm. and what's currently being, um, you know, offered to addicts who are in the acute stages or they're just in the hospital detox and like, what are they getting? And she has a lot of critical things to say about like AA, the 12 steps and how, you know, if you had, if your doctor prescribed for you for cancer, Mm. prayer, uh, meditation, and confession. Right. You know, we wouldn't do this. So it's kind of getting into that discussion of, you know, is this a disease? Does it matter, you know, in the way that we treat it? Um, I mean, I think it, I think it does. And, and I think her, her, well, I mean, her first and her, uh, I think her most interesting critique of, of AA, she dedicated a whole chapter to this idea that you have to hit a bottom. That right. AA proposes that you have to hit the bottom before you can begin to bring yourself back up. And yeah. that is what sort of created like the Synanon-based recovery groups that they try and break you down to the point where you, you know, maybe they try and create an artificial bottom by, by breaking you down to the point where you're, you're willing to grab out at anything to help you get out of the pit. And right. how they, they, there's like this, you can't look back objectively and say that was a bottom and how AA, you know, when they, you know, if you have hit a pretty low bottom 
and you continue to drink and, the, and then AA talks about Just there being trapped, trapped doors at right, the bottom, right? right? Um, you know, and how that's an extremely destructive uh, way to think for people because people who recover before they hit bottoms, before yeah. they lose their families, before <laughs> they lose their money, have better outcomes overall than people who end up on the street, right? Because there's yeah. plenty of people who are still walking around in the street drinking who you could argue have, there is no bottom any lower, oh, right? <laughs> right, And they're getting... still drinking. But meanwhile, there's a doctor and if he has health insurance and if he has, you know, yeah. supportive family and if he has uh, supportive friends and all that, his likelihood of getting better is much greater than yeah. somebody else's. So, and that's diametrically opposed to everything I was being told as far as like... <clears throat> When I couldn't, uh, when I kept relapsing when I was first trying recovery, it was, you know, what more has to happen to you before you can, you know, till you're finally at your bottom or you haven't hit bottom yet. That's why. Right. Instead of just the treatment not being, you know, appropriate or good, it's I just haven't had it bad enough. Um, I don't know. So maybe, yeah, you need that gift of desperation, um, you know, but you should be able to get the gift of desperation without you know, ending up under a bridge. I or mean, something. You, you should certainly be able to avail yourself of, of recovery and not be sort of lectured to that. You're not serious, you know, before things get so bad. Uh, I don't understand why we can't recover before you end up at that point. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you look at AA through the lens of modern science, like 12 steps sounds woefully outdated, right? I mean, it's based on a theology that says participants have no power. They are, they are morally wrong. They have to make amends. Right. Uh, most 12 step programs nod to the idea of addiction as a disease rather than a moral failing, but yet we're still making searching and fearless moral inventories, which may be a great thing to do. Yeah. But what that has to do with recovery you know, is a little unclear to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, the point is well taken. This is something we've talked about. I think it's partially because there isn't a unified field theory of addiction out there. Right. You know, you have the American Medical Association that says um, it's a brain disease, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have all of the people who run, you know, AA groups uh, or the main program believing in you can pray it away. Right. You know, and then, but there has to be some kind of unifying, the, you know, treatment that we can do. Well, and it, it makes sense, you know, instead the, of all of this. The only way you're going to come up with a unified theory of treatment is if you come up with a unified, with a theory of addiction, you yeah. know, that makes sense. <clears throat> like the learning disorder theory makes sense to me. I don't know if I buy it 100%. I think, no. but, but I, but I think it, it is. I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah. I, I don't mean, feel like we've nailed it. But I mean, even, you know, it's worth noting that, that Zalovitz herself got sober through a 12-step program and, and a traditional 12-step program. And she she goes through that in the book as she talks about how, you know, the first step uh, clearly, you know, at the point where she was shooting cocaine into her neck 15 times a day, that her life had become unmanageable. Uh, but then when you, you know, when she got to the God stuff as, a, you know, a, a, a sort of an agnostic Jew in New York, like she had a little trouble getting her head around the you know, the sort of Christian basis for, for the program, but yeah. eventually, you know, embraced it. And one of the reasons that, I mean, she was caught with a kilo of cocaine in her hotel room, yeah. was facing 15 to life. And, you know, one of the reasons that the charges were eventually dismissed, besides a bit of privilege that she had and, and resources to hire a good lawyer was right. um, because she was going to basically daily 12-step meetings. And the judge, you know, took that into account. 
Um, yeah, I mean, but she, so she doesn't so call for lives. abandoning twelve step. You know, she says it's an effective way to treat a learning disorder, really. But but it's not medical treatment, and it shouldn't no. be seen as such. And I remember my wife making a very similar argument to me, like uh, several months ago. I, we, you know, I was going off on one of my diatribes against. 12-step recovery, which mm. I was wont to do before maybe I had um, <laughs> You've, educated myself along, a little a little more on it. I, I definitely think there's value in it. But, um, but she said, you know, if people want to recover from addiction, AA is like, it's like going to a club in town and to find people that are, have similar interests to you. You yeah. go to, you should not be going to AA for treatment. You should be going to, you know, uh, therapists, psychiatrists, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's how you get your, your treatment. And then you go to AA to, I don't know, talk to people with yeah. similar, similar experiences, right. and like which the, I agree with that. The Elks know. Lodge. And that's what it the usually, Elks Lodge, yeah. yeah, that's what it usually ends up being. Like for me, I had the most, um, successful experience in 12 step when I was, you know, participating in my, um, my local AA group regularly and, I was seeing a therapist, like a professional therapist, and I was going to outpatient groups. Mm -hmm. When I had that all working, um, I felt like I did the best. So that's usually what I, I recommend to people is to throw the kitchen sink at it. Don't is, do anything just that, you know. Right. The kitchen sink is a great approach if you have good health care and somebody can... You yeah, know, but you, you don't need money to meditate, right? But You don't, but... You know, if you want if you want to take a multi-dimensional approach to addiction recovery that involves psychiatrists, therapists, interdimensional. Did I say interdimensional? No, but I was thinking it. <laughs> I mean, you do need money. You need healthcare. You need a supportive, you know, uh, environment and so forth. And a lot of people don't get that. Um, you know, she she does spend a lot of time talking about you know the the disparities in treatments and the way that we look at different people who have the same problem, right? right. Because she she made the example of like the uh, the executive who takes like a um, uh, not Ritalin. What's that other? What's that Adderall? Other? Adderall mm -hmm. to stay up all night to like uh, get work done and you know then drives home and gets into a car crash versus like mm -hmm. a long haul trucker who takes some you know, biker crank and gets yep. into an accident, you know, and, and <clears throat> one of them is considered, you know, look at how hard this guy was working to do his job. And the, and the other one is like a scourge of society, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a real problem. And Carl Hart points out, you know, also in his book, she doesn't go as in depth talking about all of the injustices, but you know, this, this point is well taken and Tracy Helton in her book, um, the big fix when she's talking about needle exchanges and she, uh, harm reduction, but I think it all goes together. Like, you know, all of our harm reduction and our trying to help bring awareness, um, you know, it's all going to get better when we learn how to, you know, view addicts. And um, in order to do that, we have to break this stigma. So, well, and the, the stick, right. The stigma is huge. It's a huge thing because, you know, um, people who recognize, um, that they have the potential to get better, do far better than people who get stuck and think that they can't get better. Right. Right? Yeah, you have to believe there's a way out um, in order to pursue that way out. So, I don't know. I don't know. I'm very uh, conflicted on some of this stuff still. Um, yep. Was there any other part of this book that you wanted to touch on before we moved on? Um. I feel like there was a lot more that like we wrote down that we were able to remember. I know. It's just kinda it's 
kind of all all over the place. Um, but I mean, she she definitely casts a wide net when it comes to to looking at the the issue. Right, so. but her point is well taken, and I think both of us, you know, as, as we're taking another step towards our unified field theory of addiction and recovery, um, I think, well, I don't think she's completely nailed it. I feel like that this is going in the right direction to think about addiction as a learning disorder, and it really made me look back on my recovery and to see which things worked for me and which things didn't um, leads me to believe that it might may have more for me been a learning disorder than anything else. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. The The only other thing I wanted to touch on is how, how she really um, takes to task the, the whole idea of tough love and, uh, yeah. And saying that um, you should freeze out addicts and uh, you know, it's, it's almost like teaching you to teach a person with an addiction as almost subhuman Right. And and that has an like effect on who people's ability read. to get better. You it's know? like think of it as teaching someone to read. Would you if someone, you know, needed to learn how to read, would you treat them as subhuman, you know, because they were looking to learn how to like right. if you're if it's a learning thing. Right. And because people with addictions typically don't uh change because they're being punished. Right. You know, by either the law or by a family member or something that you, you have much better outcomes if you if you meet uh, an addict with love, yeah. which I understand is hard to do if they've just stolen your TV set, <laughs> like yeah. for the tenth time. It, you it's know? so hard not to treat them like criminals when so frequently we are criminals. And I mean, and I saw, I but, saw. But that's that, not like you, right? I well, mean, that's like the addicted you, which is not really you, right? But when I was in it and I was at these outpatient places, I was just as much a criminal as. You know, and you go into that, and they treat you that way, and you feel more like that way, and it's it's a whole. Well, that's the self fulfilling prophecy, yeah. right? And and yeah. isn't that like isn't that what she's saying with her whole model? Yeah. You know, like it's it's a it's a dysfunctional learning skill, like you know, addiction. So treating people as an addict is also part of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I. I I mean, obviously, I agree. I think that addiction should be treated more like, but, you know, there's a lot of aspects of it that aren't covered by a learning disability, you know, like real mental illness, mm-hmm. um, you know, which she does talk about. And, and I think that these ACEs, too, she talks about adverse childhood experiences play a huge role, um, but, I guess. You know. Yeah, I mean, the adverse childhood experiences, my understanding is, like, that's how you how your learning behavior gets right that's know, how we perverted right you know right, like right. it's because of the aces so, is yeah. why you learn to be an addict and it, you know because it's a perverse coping skill right so so to that end like instead of treating people poorly because they're an addict she is an, a big proponent of harm reduction right uh clean needles uh, safe injection sites um it gives you a chance to get be- to, you know, to talk to them and to teach them. Yeah. I mean, the healing power of compassion and respect, right? Um, you know, it, she comes up with like new approaches to identify at-risk teens, like who is going to be at risk for developing this, this yeah. maladaptive uh, behavior and uh, setting up interventions for them. Um, she wants scientists to devote more energy to evaluate addiction prevention and treatment options. Uh, so, you know, the end of the book, she says, 
that she provides an action list. She says there's three things people should do if they want to get a, if we want to really address this addiction. There's uh, only three things. Three I, things. I wish I had known that before. Okay, the first one's a big one: change drug laws, regulations, and policies. <laughs> That's number one. That's all you have to do. <laughs> number two: revamp treatment programs. And number three, do more science. So that's, okay? that's all we got to do. All right. I don't know why we haven't done it sooner. I know. So, monsters out there, <laughs> tell us what you think about this at Mike R at middleagesrecovery.com. Yeah, send me some email, guys. I check that inbox. There's never any email from the listeners. Yeah, send well, us some you know email. what? Not true. There's a nice woman up in Boston, Elizabeth, who sends me emails every once in a while. And we. We do a little back. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. It's been so nice to get to meet you. So come talk about it on the private group um, at uh, middleagesrecovery.com. And with that, um, we will be right back after these words. And we're back. Okay. You think people will be able to make some sense out of that word salad that we just created? I don't know, guys. Um, I read and listened to this book several times. We did a book club on it. Maybe I'm just burnt out on that book already. Because I don't know. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't do a book club right before we do the show. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just because we both have colds also. I don't like, know. It's not flowing. Today. I don't know. I think we'll put a link up to, for you to get this book. It's a little dry. Like when I listen to it, it's, you know, but it's a really interesting story. Um, and uh, I definitely recommend it. You know, the author did say she would come on our show. Is did, that actually. Did you know that? You alluded to it. but Grant, Grant reached out to her and she said, sure. The, <laughs> she's going to come on the show. Yeah. So maybe we should make her explain it. I, yeah, I think that would, you know, be helpful. Um, you know, the Dopamine Nation, um, uh, Anna Lemke was on another show and I was a little bit jealous. Like, how come we didn't get Dr. Anna Lemke on? Uh, for I don't Dopamine think we Nation? asked Dr. Anna Lemke yeah. to come on. Yeah, it's been weird having like, you know, now that our sanctum has been violated by <laughs> outsiders, you know. Yeah, my that- sanctum is still sore from last week. <laughs> <laughs> I know, the, the, the NAS letdown. Um, yeah, it was so weird, guys. Just, you know, we're so used to, this is our space back here. It's private. Nobody yeah. hangs out while we're doing it. You know, to have uh, the guest in-house, uh, it definitely upset our delicate balance. I don't know? think Zolovitz would come here, though. She would probably do it on the phone. Yeah, right. could do that on the phone. Yeah. but um, She's been on, like, every podcast, so she... I'm sure she's a wonderful. She's a hot I would, slut. I would, She'll do ours too. I would love to just sit here and talk to her about the Grateful Dead for a couple hours, but you know. Anyway, Time you know what that brings us up to, right? Covering the news. A little vibrato on yeah. that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Don't change it. People will write letters. Yes, please. Or send us videos of them yes. doing it. <laughs> send us your videos <laughs> of you singing Recovery in the News for a chance to win something exciting. We uh, we got one this week. Yeah. yeah. Yes, thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Thanks. Very, very cool. Um, yeah. So, Recovery in the News. What That's what it? we're doing. Right. Um, Go for it. So... This uh, thing, this article I'm going to talk about today actually showed up on Yahoo News. It was aggregated. It was put in the um, 
Sober Linings Playbook Weekly Roundup at our own uh, Grant B. Soberliningsplaybook.com? Yes. That our own Grant B. aggregates all these lovely news stories for us. Yeah, very cool site. All the news you need to know. And um, so this, uh, the the head of, the head. Why can I never spit this part out? I don't know. The the headline of the article is, Shatterproof and the Hartford release largest and most expensive addiction stigma survey ever fielded. Okay. So who's Shatterproof? Shatterproof is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to ending the addiction crisis in the United States. It was started by a guy named Gary Mendel, who lost his son Brian uh, to addiction and then created um, created this working group, a nonprofit, if you will. Um, I will. Yeah. And uh, I guess Grant is uh, involved as a volunteer. Uh, yeah, it's to very cool. To that. He's mentioned Shatterproof in the past. So yeah, they seem like a, an awesome organization doing really good work. Uh, but they have uh, d- apparently done a, uh, a stigma survey out mm. there to see what people's attitudes in the general public are towards people with uh, addictive uh, or substance abuse disorders. And what would you imagine that mm. most people think about addicts? <laughs> they probably think we're no good, untrustworthy, you know, criminal types that we uh preying on the young. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Pretty You'd much. be correct. Yeah. Uh the inaugural <laughs> survey reveals pervasive discrimination by public em- by the public, by employers, and by healthcare workers. Uh and it's making substance abuse disorder more difficult to address. Um 8,000 U.S. residents were surveyed. Uh, the findings were striking. More than three-quarters of the American public believe that a substance abuse disorder is not a chronic medical illness, and over half of the respondents hold the belief that substance abuse disorders are caused by bad character or lack of moral strength, according to the national research. Gee, who else says that addiction is a result of moral failings that need to be laid out and categorized? Anybody else that we know of? Hmm. Hmm. Um, I don't know anybody like that. Really? Searching in fearless moral inventory? (laughs) No? No no bells ring? It's an allergy. It's an allergy. That's the main thing. Um, So the the Shatterproof Addiction Stigma Index, a first-of-its-kind measurement tool, was designed to assess attitudes about substance use and people who use substances. It used more than 50 validated stigma measures to gauge perceptions of those with a substance abuse disorder, including the degree to which they have internalized this exclusion. Excuse me. The lack of understanding about addiction by the general public creates a desire for social distance. According to the survey, nearly half of the public is unwilling to live next door to or be close friends with someone with an SUD. So how would they know? I guess if they're just always outside. This is a hypothetical person. Hypothetical person. Even though, how many people have SUD struggle? People who struggle with that in their families, like everyone. Similarly, 45% of respondents don't want a person in recovery marrying into their family, highlighting how these beliefs entrench deep feelings of exclusion and shame. In recovery. Right. So someone who's clean. Right. They still don't want them Because they may not be clean again someday, I guess. Wow. I don't know. What's at stake is real. For millions of people across the country, fighting pervasive stigma is a matter of survival, says Gary Mendel, CEO of Shatterproof. We must change the way our institutions operate, the way we view our friends and neighbors, and how those with substance abuse disorder view themselves. We must end discrimination, strengthen the road to recovery, and offer hope of a bright future. And measuring our progress is essential. Um, and they give a really interesting example of a, a, an MD 
who is a Shatterproof ambassador from Kentucky and a person in long-term recovery, uh, to talk about the stigma that she received when she uh, received a severe dog bite. She found herself as a patient in the hospital system where she had previously been employed as a, a resident physician and a pharmacist. And she says that former coworkers actually greeted her with jeers, joking that the doctor turned junkie was back. And during her eight-hour ER stay, she didn't receive the standard of care for her injuries. Neither antibiotics nor analgesics were administered after I requested non-opioid agents, despite standard facility protocols and the easily observed severity of my injuries. It was made abundantly clear from both their actions and language that this healthcare team felt the disease of addiction, even one in recovery, made me an individual less deserving of compassion and care. And this is exactly what Zalovitz was talking about yeah. in her book. That There's a part of that story we're not getting. Like, what did she do to piss these people? People off before she left <laughs> you know, like there's a reason they're treating her that way and i doubt it's a hundred percent because she's just a person with addiction that they're right like she probably stole somebody's girlfriend or you, <laughs> you know. don't know man she might have pissed somebody off i don't know i don't know i i am no, fully prepared to believe that the stigma is real and that that's the way she was treated and that may have been nothing more complicated than her prior history uh you know yeah it's definitely true i actually know um an addict uh in who's a doctor and it was known that they were uh when they were getting their residency or when they're deciding where they're going to be placed i don't fully understand how doctors do it but right he was wanted surgery but because I think it was known that he was in recovery, mm -hmm. he thinks that you know they steered him to anesthesiology, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But hmm. I guess like you know I've heard of this, um, and of course when we're going through the system, you know you get treated completely differently. Hmm. You know, uh, well, there's definite stigma. There are some statistical takeaways from uh, from the study. I actually Shatterproof has a really interesting. Uh, Stigma Index 2021 Social Media Toolkit that Grant sent me. You gotta love this stuff, man. They're very, they're very good with their Stigma Toolkit. Makes my job easy. Um, more than half of the public believes that bad character or lack of moral strength cause substance abuse disorder. Um, only 25% of the public believes that someone currently using substances is trustworthy. Now, do they include alcohol in there? Right. Or probably not, right? Because those alcoholics or people that use alcohol on a daily basis. They're very trustworthy. They're trustworthy. Right? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. They serve alcohol at Chuck E. Cheese's. They do. So You're really hung up on that. I know. You've mentioned that like every time we talk every about time. it. Every <laughs> time. Because it's so ridiculous. Yes. I yeah. don't know. It's like, it just, you know, hits it home there. <laughs> uh of the healthcare professionals surveyed, 44% believe that medications for opioid use disorder just substitute one drug for another. So even healthcare professionals don't believe in medically assisted treatment, apparently, despite the fact that science uh, is, shows that it's effective. Ugh, um, so sick. And more than half of the public would be unwilling to have a person in recovery as their supervisor at work. <laughs> We'd rather have them drunk. We'd <laughs> rather have them drunk. <laughs> I don't know, man. A lot of work to be done. I mean, attitudes are changing, but they're yeah. certainly not changing fast enough. This is this is some very depressing statistical, you know, uh, stuff here. Part of it is us coming out. Like, here's here's the difficult part. And um, I actually, I don't know if I told you guys, but I was asked to speak at a fundraiser for um, the the last outpatient place that I went mm -hmm. to is local, and uh, they reached out to me to speak at a fundraiser because I'm a success story. 
And um, of course, it's too local. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I can't because everyone, you know, I don't want everybody to know all of my business because my family still, I still work in this town. My kids go to the school here. I go to mm-hmm. the church, you know, but it's because there's this stigma. So, but by me writing, I wrote a little speech for them. And it was anonymous. And I said in that speech, you know, because of this stigma, I can't, you know, tell you who I am. Right. But I can tell you that you know who I am. Right. And I know who you are. Mm -hmm. You know, and then this is a real issue. And, you know, so maybe doing something like that, maybe the next time it can actually be me. You know, when we make a little more progress, you know, people like us have to come out and be like, you know what, that was me. And, you know, we're not animals. We're but, not the, but the stigma is very real, which is the which is the reason I still maintain this thin veneer yeah, of anonymity in this is. podcast, at least at the level of a Google search, right? Because right. I mean, people will think differently, and my job could be at stake yeah. uh, if somebody gets the wrong idea or here's one of my losing my pants in a in a crack induced haze in the '80s stories and decides <laughs> to tell my boss about it, despite the fact that that was 38 years ago. And we see this all the time in uh, cancel culture. Something someone said years ago will pop up, and it's you know, it's no yeah. good. It's no bueno. No bueno. So that's that's a, a big hill we've got to climb together. People is uh, killing the stigma. Kill the stigma. Kill it. And that's recovering. The recovering news. the news. Yeah. All right. And as Joseph now said, uh, "You fuckers. Fuck yeah. <laughs> right, <because> fuck yeah. <laughs> I like his. I like. I like. Yeah. Fuck yeah." Uh, that was so cool having uh, Joseph here. And, that was uh, great. I know. A it's, real fan. A real fan in studio. Yes. It's really cool to have a fan. It's time uh, for Weekend Weird. Bizarre Wishbone UFO filmed in Chicago by who? <laughs> Tim Benal. A peculiar piece of footage from Chicago shows a truly bizarre wishbone-like UFO hovering in the sky as the witnesses watching it struggle to comprehend what they are seeing. What are we seeing? (laughs) The weird video was reportedly filmed last month by a woman named Ayana as she and her son stood atop the roof of their home observing the unusual flying object. Quote, (laughs) unusual flying object. (laughs) Yeah, not a usual one. I literally have no idea what it was. There is nothing comparable, she said, recounting how, quote, I felt total confusion and a bit (laughs) creeped out uh, as the eerie sighting unfolded. To that end, in the video, Ayana and her son can be heard nervously laughing about the odd UFO and wondering <laughs> what it could be before he muses, quote, let's think logically about this. Despite that appeal to reason, the young man fails to come up with an explanation for the strange object, which his mother later described as, quote, a ball of some sort with two long strings or belts hanging from it. Poetic. Though it is. The strings had knobs in the middle and the bottom. Although their video is only about a minute long, Ayana says they saw it, quote, float slowly southeast without any other major movement for about 20 minutes. I know what it is. What is it? A fucking balloon. (laughs) You think it's that? You think she would be that confused by a regular balloon? A big mylar balloon. I don't know. Maybe a weather balloon. Right? Aren't most UFOs weather balloons? I think most UFOs are alien spaceships. Okay. Great beyond. So if you want to see uh, the link to that video, uh, it'll be on the show notes. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Just going ahead, reading ahead here, it says, 
The predominant theory put forward by viewers online is that it is some kind of errant balloon. Ha! Ha! See? <laughs> yeah, but... It's it, a balloon. Maybe. An maybe. errant balloon. See for yourself. Go to our show notes and uh, we will link to the article. <laughs> and that is Weak and Weird. Well, that about does it for today. I know I had a great time. Did you? It was super. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com, Podbean, Apple Podcast, Facebook, and uh, tweet us to twat. You twit. Support your favorite show. Please, guys, go to your Apple Podcast app. Give us a five-star review, and please write something cool that we can read. We love to uh, hear from you guys. Go to the website. Buy a T-shirt. Our T-shirts are mm, awesome. Just buy it's one super already. easy to buy one, and you can represent it. Um, we love meeting new monsters on the private Facebook group, so come say hello. And finally, the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. If you get something out of our little show, please share the love and help grow the RMA movement. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. Progress. Not perfection. See you next time. Be good. Bye.